Welcome to On Call with Dr. Dave. On today's podcast, we're speaking with Dr. Adam, who is a hematologist oncologist. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Now, when you look back at your career, what stories stick out to you? What are those moments that uh, you remember most acutely? Some patients affect you more than others. Mm-hmm. So a couple stand out. I think really my first couple of experiences in oncology was before residency even, uh, when I was still a medical student. So my first rotation in oncology was at the leukemia wards. And at that time, I was in med school, so in my early 20s, and there was a 21-year-old with acute leukemia. And just seeing, unfortunately, he passed. He had a very aggressive uh, type of leukemia and wasn't responding to treatment. So just seeing someone basically the same age as you withering away and where, you know, you've seen them a couple of weeks before and, excuse me, they were completely normal, right? So I think that was like my intro to oncology, which for a lot of people, it might be traumatic enough to say, I don't want anything near to go anywhere near that. For me, I'm not sure what it was, but something clicked. So I'm Lebanese originally. I did my medical school in Lebanon, then I moved to the U.S. in 2008. So during my intern year, I was engaged at that time, and my fiance was still back in Lebanon. She was finishing up her med school, and she got diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Wow. Yeah. So, which is weird because anyone who would think that they might have cancer or have any questions about oncology or I'll call Adam. He'll at least know where to direct us. What's interesting is that she had a little bit of chest pain over the sternum, like almost costochondral junction for about six months. We were like young female, Tate yeah. syndrome, costochondritis, yeah, let's do NSAIDs. Yeah, then. exactly. Then you got to a point where they got it. She got a mass and it was basically the distinal mass that has made its way between the ribs and was actually something palpable. That's when she got the biopsy and got diagnosed with it. I got that call at six in the morning as I was getting ready to go in. I was still an intern that year. And going back to what I was just saying, where you feel the walls are closing in on you. You can't breathe. You can't even cry. You're just like in shock completely. This does have a happy ending. Luckily, she responded extremely well to chemotherapy. It was classic Hodgkin's lymphoma. This was 2008, almost 15 years ago. So she's alive and well with two beautiful children. Obviously, we're not together, but that's for a different reason, not related to the cancer. <laughs> now, cancer treatment has changed and improved more in the last five, 10 years than I think at any other time in history. When you think back to that first patient with the aggressive leukemia, do you think that, do you think that guy would have had a chance now? Do you think we would have had a treatment plan for him? Possibly, yeah. It's changed so much. As I said, I graduated in 2013. And just looking back at the way we treated some cancers just 10 years ago, completely different than the way we treat them today. For that patient, very possibly just even the testing aspect of it and 
trying uh, moving away from characterizing cancers based on how they look under a microscope to molecularly characterizing cancers. And that's the step beyond. And then after that, you get to the molecularly targeted therapies, uh, which has been the largest uh, step forward that and immunotherapy. If you might have a fighting chance, one example I'll use is melanoma. Melanoma right now, um, immunotherapy has changed the landscape of melanoma so much, uh, just because it responds so well to immunotherapy. And at the same time, immunotherapy in general is uh, really well tolerated. When I was going through training, we had two drugs for melanoma and neither one worked. So anyone with metastatic melanoma, it was pretty much a death sentence, except for 13% who have to undergo interleukin therapy mm -hmm. and they're in the ICU for days, if not weeks. But for the most part, we were giving patients treatments, might not work so well, but there were no other options. The last few months before I graduated was when the first immunotherapy was approved for melanoma. And I remember we gave a patient that infusion. So remember, it cost $60,000 for four doses back then. <laughs> and it was huge. It was like night and day, someone going from extremely sick to within a few weeks, just feeling normal again, eating more active. Wow. So it's really, it's been changing so fast and just the progress has been exponential. One of the most exciting things going on in oncology right now is really the new therapies for sure. My grandfather died of metastatic melanoma. So it's oh. interesting. That's the one example you brought up because yeah. that's what killed him and it might not have now. I had a, yeah, my grandmother died of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma when she was 33 and this was in the, what, the sixties. Yeah. And that wouldn't have been, she probably would have been fine today. Yeah. Especially lymphomas. And of course there are so many different types and not all of them have great prognosis, but for the vast majority, they do really well, or at least we can keep the disease at bay for such a long time. It's just a, a very different world. Yeah. And I'll tell you a story about one of my favorite patients to that point. So I have a veteran who I was after hours, I was still at the hospital and he just showed up to the outpatient clinic mm -hmm. and he wants to be seen right mm -hmm. now because he has lung cancer. So this was a guy who was about 70 years old, but he looks like he was in his mid fifties, mm -hmm. healthy, never a smoker, still boxing and riding his <laughs> Harley at 70. And he had lung cancer because he was exposed to Agent Orange. And oh, wow. oh, wow. It was that feeling, that feeling that you got betrayed by your body, you got betrayed by the exposure you received as he was a Vietnam vet. And yeah. you have this tough vet guy that is yelling at all the staff and everyone is scared of him. And just talking to him to five minutes and giving him a hug and the guy just broke down then and there. So people are just scared. Yeah. And just the issue is, I think one of the biggest blessings we have in life is not knowing when this life is going to end, right? So not saying that if you have a diagnosis of cancer, 
one, you're definitely going to die. Two, you have an accurate timeline. But especially if it's one of the more nasty cancers or metastatic, which we can cure some metastatic cancers even nowadays. But for the most part, that you have an expiration date that's within the foreseeable future. And mm-hmm. I think that's what's really hard for us to reconcile. But then again, it's amazing. The human spirit is amazing, especially when you see some people who, especially when they're older, where they accept it. And I would have this whole spiel ready to give it to them and they'll be like, Doc, I had a good life. It is what it is. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's one way of looking at it for sure. Yeah, it's definitely harder the younger you are to accept that. But I I have had friends that have passed away from cancer young. And as Mm -hmm. sad and as horrible as it is, it does give life a certain amount of clarity we all, they say, live every day like it's your last, which we can't do. We, we can't do that. I have to pay bills. I have to show up to work. If today is my last day, I'd be with my family. And yet, so we, we can't truly live like every day is our last. Like you said, it's sometimes a blessing that we don't know because we have to be able to just live life and enjoy it and not know. But then when something comes up, when you do have that timeline, and then you really can sit down and you can find that clarity in life that you didn't have time for in some levels knowing and if you have a week or two it's a little different than you have if you have a month or two and it's different than if you are told a year or two but it still gives your life some focus and a trajectory on the flip side one of my happiest stories was a gentleman he was 18 when he first came and saw me and he had Ewing sarcoma of the cervical spine so extremely yeah. difficult location involving like the body of the cervical spine so cer- clear up here mm-hmm. yep. wow. right up here just Ooh. below the base of the skull and you can't cut it out right i sent him even to the top two spine neurosurgeons uh who specialize in it in those kinds of surgeries. And both of them recommended against surgery. So I ended up with multiple rounds of chemotherapy and consolidative radiation. And the poor guy, he was on steroids for so long just because it was pressing on his cord. And he got bilateral avascular necrosis of the femoral heads and was on crutches. And so that's, that's on your hips right there. My, the, the yeah. Hips are yeah, right up at the top where the femur goes into the hips. and. It's a complication with steroids. It's not common, but yeah, getting that in both and then the femur dies and then walking on it's super painful. It's yeah, that's rough. Yeah. So this guy, he went from being excited to start college to basically living at the hospital for weeks at end. But the good news is by the time I left that practice, three years after the initial diagnosis, he was completely disease-free. I still, one of my buddies who's taking care of him, whenever they see him, they text me, still doing fine. He says hi. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, it's, yeah, it's hard. It's definitely hard when you have a young patient, for sure, which is why I could never do pediatric oncology. <laughs> Kudos to those guys, but I have a hard time just 
dealing with a sick child with sniffles, right? <laughs> it's some, something just, you know, someone reaches out into your chest and twists your arm. Yeah, I remember actually I was a medical student. I was doing rotation and we had this newborn with multi-organ failure so this was completely serendipitous. Digging through the ta- the history, so this that couple they had one child alive and well, twelve years old or so, but apparently they've had three or four babies before who also died within the first two three weeks of life. Oh, wow! And no one can figure out why. And uh, at that time there were taking their chances. I'm like, all right, we'll give it a shot if this one lives. So this was, yeah, number three or number four. And that patient ended up passing away. But completely serendipitously, I was reading about HLH, hemophagocytic histolymphocytosis, which is a mouthful and not that something that you commonly see. No. And going through it, I'm like, this looks way too similar to this case. We ended up doing a liver biopsy. As I mentioned, it's, there's a genetic um, variant of it, which is what that family had. And almost all of them die. Uh, but at the very least, we weren't able to save that patient, but we were able to give the parents a diagnosis and why this is happening. Mm-hmm. And that they probably shouldn't be trying for more kids anymore. Yeah. knowing's powerful we can handle bad news we really can humans are pretty adaptable we can handle bad news Mm -hmm. i feel like the hardest things that i've had to do as a doctor is to tell people i don't know and i don't know anybody that does know there's somebody to go see this doctor at this university but there are things that we just don't know yet and to tell patients Mm -hmm. i know you're suffering or i know this is affecting your life we just don't know why and i'm sorry that's hard. They sometimes would rather just have a, even a bad diagnosis just to know what's happening. Just the peace of mind that family had, why this is happening. Yes, it'll happen again if you keep trying. I saw it one other time. And that's <laughs> even for us in the specialty, it's, it's not something you're dealing with on a regular basis. Yeah. I'm not going to remember. Yeah, but it's it just makes me appreciate everybody. Like it's, when, I, when people come on the podcast, and I listen to them. And I hear their humanity and what they go through. It just makes me love everybody more. And that's the power of everybody's story. Patients, doctors, if you get to know somebody, it's hard not to love them. Even some of the most cantankerous old men that are just grumpy in your office. Once you start talking to them about their lives, you just love them anyway, even if they're grumpy. Or maybe you understand why they're a little grumpy. And I think we just need to have more time for conversations with each other and with patients. We're just forced through the mill of medicine. And if we slow down, and it's hard to slow down and still make ends meet in today's market, but we we need the time to get to know each other. 100%. When I'm spending more time behind the monitor than in the room with the patient, there's something wrong there. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your stories. Thank you for all you do for your patients and for medicine in general. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you inviting me to come on and just share little bits and pieces. I think it's amazing what you're doing and to be able to, as you mentioned, to 
give each other some grace and have some more collegiality and just hearing each other's stories, I think it's really helpful. I agree. Nicely done. Thank you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Thank you, doctor. Hi, this is Dr. Dave. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review, and share this episode so that we can continue to get you more stories in the future.